0: Further restrictions are being placed on the celebration of the traditional Latin mass here in the US. Why is there such fear of the old right? President of the Acton Institute, Father Robert Sirico, is here with analysis and a preview of his new film on Chinese dissident Jimmy Lai. President of the Catholic League, Dr. Bill Donahue, shares his thoughts on this 20th anniversary of the Boston Globe's report on clergy sex abuse. What have we learned since the scandal first broke? Finally, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, Ross Douthat, is here to talk about a harrowing experience with Lyme disease and his new memoir, The World Over, begins right now. <laughs> Happy New Year to you, happy Epiphany, and a warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have a great show for you tonight, an important one. If you'd like to send a comment, do so. I'm at Twitter, at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening, but first, on this Epiphany, I was thinking of that old Christmas carol that contains the line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And I thought— about my hopes and fears and expectations for 2022. Here they are. Firstly, this new year could furnish us with unexpected surprises in Rome. We could see another consistory uh, where new cardinals are created before the year is out. Pope Francis has already chosen 70 cardinals, or 58% of those eligible to vote for the next pope. But in this new year, some of France's closest collaborators, cardinal collaborators, including Oscar Rodriguez Maradiaga, uh, Gianfranco uh, Ravasi, and eight others will turn 80, making them ineligible to vote in the next conclave. The pope could name 10 or more cardinals. It's really up to him. The timing of this could be critical, since, for months, I've been hearing whispers, mostly among churchmen of a possible conclave in this new year. The pope did just survive major colon surgery. He is 85, and there's a lot of talk about who might succeed him. We shall see. But more immediately, the Synod on Synodality will wrap its local diocesan listening sessions this fall. At that time, the findings of these sessions will start rolling in. Now, given that those most interested in this synodal approach are progressives, I expect the recommendations to be fairly radical and not at all surprising. I mean, have you attended a listening session or even heard about one? Me neither. There will no doubt be a tussle over whether what certain dioceses submit to the synod comports with church teaching and what it all means. If the last few synods are any indication, you can expect much disagreement and probably a few unanswered dubia before it's over. There is also some lingering unfinished business from 2021 that will no doubt bubble up in this new year. The scandalous financial trial underway at the Vatican will drag on in 2022. Now my sources expect only partial transparency when this is all over and even less justice, but we will be watching. The pope's restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass have roiled both faithful and certain bishops. This is a quiet battle that I think is going to rage throughout this new year as progressives rat out traditionalists and Rome will either accompany the traditional faithful or embrace the throwaway culture and simply toss them aside. The Vatican will also face a hard choice and perhaps a reckoning vis-a-vis China this year. The secret deal the Vatican signed with the murderous Chinese regime has only made life worse for the faithful in mainland China. Now President Xi is coming for the sacraments, as we'll talk about in our next segment, and he's clamping down on the Hong Kong diocese. The pope made no mention of China in his annual message to the city and the world, which is a tragedy and has raised not a word of protest against the brutal tactics of that regime. As the suffering of Catholics in China intensify and the Olympics turn a spotlight on the country, the Vatican's silence will no longer be tolerable. Maybe if the Chinese started saying the old Latin Mass, they'd get a reaction. And here in the United States, President Joe Biden, a professed Catholic, intends to codify abortion on demand into law. In flagrant violation of church teaching, he's also trying to revive the Obamacare contraceptive mandate. All of this will bedevil the bishops and the church in 2022. Some of the U.S. bishops will no doubt continue to speak out. But Rome has adopted the same don't ask, don't tell strategy it's used in China let's hope it has better results here. Whatever happens in 2022, the church is definitely going to transform before our eyes. They say personnel is policy. Well, a number of major archdioceses and Vatican offices are about to see new leadership, likely within this calendar year. There are about 15 cardinals who will reach retirement age in 2022, or already beyond it. Among them, The Archbishop of Washington, Wilton Gregory. The Archbishop of Sri Lanka, Malcolm Ranjith. The Archbishop of Westminster, Vincent Nichols. Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston, who will be 78. The Archbishop of Vienna, Christoph Schonborn. Vatican Cardinals, Kevin Farrell at the Dicastery for Laity, Family, and Life. And Mark Ouellette at the Congregation for Bishops. All hit retirement age this year. In the U.S. alone, 19 bishops will either be over 75 or will reach that milestone, including Archbishop Thomas Olmsted in Phoenix. The pope will have some major decisions to make regarding these dioceses and Vatican officers, but no matter what he decides, these men are getting no younger, and eventually they will have to be replaced, and that will clearly change the face and the direction of the church globally. But as we face all these challenges and conflicts and fears ahead, the end of that famous Christmas hymn is instructive. Oh, come to us, abide in us, our Lord Emmanuel. We'll certainly need his help in 2022. As I referenced in my intro, Pope Francis's law restricting the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass is now working its way through dioceses around the world. Now some bishops are leaving current policies in place, while others are suspending their permissions for the celebration of the old rite. Why is there such alarm and fear over what was the liturgy of the Holy Roman Church for over a thousand years? Here with analysis of this and much more is president of the Acton Institute, Father Robert Sirico. Happy New Year to your father. I want to begin with a new policy issued by Cardinal Blaise Supich in the Archdiocese of Chicago, restricting the use of the Latin liturgy there. The Cardinal's rule bans the use of the traditional liturgy on Christmas, Easter Sunday, the first Sunday of each month, and other holy days. Uh, those rules also stipulate that the Latin Mass and the Scripture readings have to be in English, and priests need the archbishop's approval for that traditional liturgy. Those who do get it will be asked to speak to their congregations about the, quote, "...possibility of using the reformed liturgical rites in the future." Cardinal Supich explains that his reasoning for these new rules is, quote, "...to foster and make manifest the unity of this local church, as well as to provide all Catholics in the Archdiocese, an opportunity to offer a concrete manifestation of the acceptance of the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and its liturgical books. Now, Father Sirico, you headed a parish where the traditional Latin Mass was celebrated, along with the Novus Ordo. What do you make of these rules?
1: Well, I found them very distressing, uh, and I can only imagine how— Distressed, the people of St. John Cantius were in Chicago when they heard this. And remember, this was being at Christmas, on Christmas Eve. And uh, I just found it very devastating. And as a pastor, I find it, uh, the timing alone, to be very unpastoral and imprudent. Now, we could pick apart the details of all of this, but uh, that's my my basic reaction to the whole thing.
0: Now, St. John Cantius is a parish in Chicago that uh, celebrates both the traditional Latin Mass as well as the Novus Ordo. Here's my question. In your experience with those who frequent the traditional Latin Mass, is there some lack of acceptance of the Second Vatican Council or the liturgical books of Vatican II?
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are such people, and I think in the past there were more of them because now, especially when you have parishes that are celebrating both, there's a healing, there's a reconciliation. You should pardon the phrase, there's a unity that's taking place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been celebrating the old Mass since 2007 when Pope Benedict made it available through his motu proprio, and I mm-hmm. have not seen uh, If you want to see the kind of uh, folks who reject both the doctrine, the moral doctrine of the Second Vatican Council, as well as its liturgical norms. Uh, Cardinal Supic only has to look to his own diocese and see Santa Brina, uh, Mm. where where on Christmas Eve, you had this spectacular thing that took place that was hardly in accord with the, the mass of the Second Vatican Council. Now, I'd like to hear some pronouncement on that, but I've heard none.
0: Yeah, well, we're rolling video of that now, Father, and uh, it's amazing to me. There's one point where a man comes up, he embraces Father Flager, who's celebrating the Mass, and they knock over what looks like, a, I don't know, a canoe of, of uh, uh, the hosts that, that are knocked to the floor. And uh, Flager just picks them up, throws them back in, and continues on as if nothing's happened. I mean, the flagrant disregard—I can't imagine that this is the vision—in fact, I know it's not—of the, the council fathers. This is is clearly not what they no. saw as the no. uh, the Vatican, the liturgy
1: of Vatican II. No, it certainly wasn't. You, you know what is particularly um, curious about this reaction to the traditional mass is that it comes from a certain generation of priests who mm. uh, were familiar with the old tradition but never really celebrated and in the case of our Holy Father, he was ordained in 1969. That was the very year that the Mass of Paul VI was promulgated. And Cardinal Supich was ordained in 75. So I don't think either of these priests ever celebrated the old Mass. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the young people who are giving vibrancy to the tradition. In fact, I joke and say <laughs> in my parish, the uh, traditional mass is the teen mass because if you average the <laughs> age there it's it's really remarkable both with the young babies that are present and the young people who are present
0: yeah i uh, father i had occasion during the christmas uh uh advent and then christmas to go to two light masses one in arizona one in louisiana i have to tell you it was packed with predominantly young families and young yes. people who were far younger than I, so their connection to these liturgy wars and the battles over Vatican II, that was—they that they have literally no frame of reference. I no. think you're right. Cardinal Supich's new rules, however, appeared in the Vatican news. Now, yes. I, I, it is remarkable that you would have a local directives of an individual diocese get coverage by, by the Vatican press. What's the purpose of that? Is that a signal that this is what the Vatican, or those in some of these offices, would prefer bishops to conduct themselves vis-à-vis uh, the traditional Latin Mass.
1: Yes, and and let's remember that those in those curial offices are the same profile of priests that I've, I've just described. Yes, I think it's trying to send a, an international message across the bow. Now, these protocols, this uh, document that was issued, was sent well in advance to the Vatican and other progressive websites to... Uh, I suspect even before St. John Cantius received the information. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think what it's trying to do is snuff this out, in particular, it, it, we'll see how this plays out, but in particular in parishes where the Novus Ordo exists with the traditional mass, like my parish, like St. John Cantius and other parishes, uh, it's going to be mm-hmm. a whole other for those societies that are devoted. Solely to the the older forms of the liturgy, and I think yeah. the reason for is the concern that all of these young people. This is where it's growing. Archer, uh, since the motu proprio of, of Francis was promulgated, uh, the attendance at the old mass grew. We we have standing only at that mass now.
0: You know, that, that I experienced the exact same thing in two different states during the Christmas break here. Yep. And I, I was frankly astounded by it. And I asked some of the young people there, you know, what brought you— they had never heard of the Latin Mass before, Father. Right. Before they saw right. it mentioned in the media because of the Pope's crackdown. So it's a very interesting. Yeah. You're getting, um, you know, perverse brand uh, uh, aggrandizement here uh, b- exactly. by this this very negative order. So we'll see. In in Providence, this may end up being a, a good on the whole because I think. Uh, people are looking anew and wondering, well, what is this? I, 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 what, right. what, what, what was this? When did it happen? And why is it so verboden now? Uh, there, there are other bishops in the U.S. and we should mention them: Bishop Paprocki of Springfield, uh, Archbishop Sample in Portland, Archbishop Cordileone in San Francisco. They've not made any changes in the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass in their dioceses. Um,
1: yeah, no, I'm and, not a canonist, but I think what what's happening now is you've got the motu proprio of Francis that came out. Mm-hmm. And then this response to a dubia. It's nice to know that at times they can respond to dubia. Uh, but in this case, it attempted to, quote-unquote, clarify. Now, I'm not a canonist, as I say, and you'd have to have Father Murray, for example, analyze this. But mm-hmm. from my these both of these documents were hastily written. They have contained contradictions, and they contain mm-hmm. outright that will need to be corrected before they're, you know formally instantiated in the the you know teaching of the church, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, I think that my hope is that wiser heads will eventually prevail as this thing shakes out, and there'll be mm-hmm. some revision letting up of this.
0: Well, I, I also think the other consideration here is remember, there was a poll of the world's bishops. Uh, that purportedly uh, preceded this motu proprio. What we now learn in reporting is that that poll determined that the majority of bishops said this is either a good thing or, you know, it's a little group over here. They don't seem to be causing right. any trouble. It's fine. I mean, there was there were very few who were saying, this needs to be stamped out. And frankly, yeah. Father—and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. What we see in a lot of parishes as the Novus Ordo, including the priest facing the people, the lack of Gregorian chant, that is actually not what the Council Fathers envisioned when you read the documents and the liturgical books of Vatican II. So, how do we reconcile the refinements and evolution?
1: Yeah. The the, the documents of Vatican II themselves uh, presume Latin. It says you can have vernacular, but care should be taken that the faithful know the principal parts of the Mass in Latin. It also presumes Mm -hmm. that because the the instructions, the rubrics at various times say, and then the priest will turn toward the people. Um, So you're quite right. What happened after Vatican II, the implementation of it, uh, is where the liturgists uh, really took over and a whole crop a new industry came into being uh to mm-hmm. kind of guide this this process and and now we're at the this spectacle that that we described at uh, Santa Sabrina in in Chicago
0: mm, no that Santa Sabrina is I, I have to say it's a it's a aberration and a nightmare i mean when you see it it's just it's tragic that that's yeah. allowed to go on but um here's my my larger question because Uh, Cardinal Cupich raises the possibility that people are not accepting the liturgical books of Vatican II. My argument in watching this play out, having read those books, is none of what I see conforms to the books of Vatican II. So how do you expect the general public to embrace it when we we, we see no examples of it? How do you reconcile the refinements and evolution of the Novus Ordo during the reigns of Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict with the new understanding that we're seeing now?
1: Well, I think, you know, you actually do see the Mass of Vatican II being celebrated. And oddly enough, it's in a place like St. John Cantus. It's in a place like Sacred Heart and other places where the Mass doesn't seem like it's another religion from the old Mass. And yet it's in the vernacular or, uh, you know, the the, the norms of the Second Vatican Council are being carried out. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I think you're right. It's really gone haywire, and this division that's happening is not on the part of the people who reverence the tradition. You know, I I was not—I grew up with the old Mass, but I was trained to celebrate the new Mass. I didn't celebrate the old Mass, as I said, until 2007. And -hmm. I I could take the criticism a little better— uh, if I knew these priests who were making the criticism had celebrated the Mass uh, or were associated with communities where it was normatively celebrated, then they would really see what these people are made of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we're talking, we should say, we're talking about a very small group of people who attend the traditional Latin Mass. This is not 30 so or 40 percent of the Catholic Church, but it is growing. No. Yes, it is. Uh, you, you know, but it's small. It's a small group.
1: It is. But I think that's the concern that m- my suspicion is that that's the concern, is that the tail will end up wagging the dog. But people are looking for transcendence. You know, people are mm. looking for that's why they come to church, by the way, and to uh, see a spectacular show that's not as good as what you see at a theater uh, or a convention venue. Uh, like they they have there in Chicago is it, not what people are looking for. I mean, it's not as good as a rock concert. You know, these people are yeah. liturgists who really don't know the music. I mean, I, I watched uh, parts of that and it, the music just wasn't that good. The chore- choreography was mediocre at best. Uh, the lighting wasn't very good. Uh, so, you know, it, it it's pretend. It's playtime. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, it's a spectacle. It's the, the wrong kind of spectacle. Uh, during his Christmas right. address to the Curia in Rome last month, Pope Francis stressed the need for humility among the cardinals. And he had this to say regarding tradition. The vital memory we have of tradition, our roots, is not a cult of the past. Those who are pridefully and easily prone to rigidity, a modern-day perversion that leads people to be unsettled by what is new, only humility can put us in the right condition. To meet and listen and dialogue and discern and pray together, reforming the spirit of the synod will fail if everyone remains enclosed in their convictions, clericalism, treating clergy members as superior and untouchable, has led some to believe that God speaks only to some, while others must only listen and follow." End quote. What do you make of the pope's comments there, especially in light of all we're seeing with the the, the crackdown on this Mass and, and uh, tradition itself?
1: Well, there's—much of what the pope is saying there is so true. I mean, humility is, uh, you know, given to us by Christ and by Our Lady and by the saints. Uh, And I would like to see that same humility uh, be displayed. Uh, I think we do need to pray together, but really pray together and to, by the way, Jesus Christ. Uh, And I, I understand some of the sensitivity. You see, stereotypes can lead us to the truth, but sometimes stereotypes are not accurate at all. And the stereotype of the rigid traditionalist, uh, clergy-worshipping, faithful, it sure doesn't go on in my parish, I'll tell you that. I mean, people voice their opinions, they're respectful, they're loving, they're supportive, but it's a a beautiful dialogue. And the different kinds of people who come, it's not the stereotype of, you know, a kind, Straight-laced people. We have people with tattoos, and young people with long hair, and you know, all kinds of folks who come. It's it's really amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah no, no, that 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 stereotype is such an old canard. When I when I read that, I I, I go. Oh. These are obviously the the people who are informing the Pope on this. Obviously, have never gone out as I have in the past couple of weeks watched and looked—I mean, I saw the entertainers, uh, comedians, uh, writers, uh, people of real esteem who are quite creative and hardly rigid folks—I mean, I think you'd be shocked. I'm not going to expose them here. But uh, these are the people who are yearning, as you said, for that transcendent. I think they just want reverence and holiness, and they find it in this old rite. So why not Raymond, give it to them? Is
1: my th- this is not really, in a way, this is not a new debate. This is a goes back to the council and when there was talk right. of the master of the vernacular, you may recall you've referenced it undoubtedly on the show. Uh, the writing from people like Agatha Christie, who isn't a Catholic, right? Uh, right. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who pleaded with uh, uh, Pope Paul VI not. To abolish the Latin, yeah. uh, and evil and War and Graham
0: Greene and so many others, yeah, right. hardly conservative right. folk, I might
1: add. Right. It, it, what it reminded me of, you, you remember, some years ago when the Taliban dynamited the Buddha statues uh, in mm, I think I do. Afghanistan. I It was it was terrible, and and the whole world, the whole aesthetic world, responded not because they believed in Buddhism, but because they recognized there was something about. The, um, the venerability, the ancient nature of those statues and what it represented to that culture and the mm-hmm. horrifying disregard for the history of that place. And I think this is the similar thing that there are people who don't believe in the Latin mass, don't believe in God even, but who recognize the importance of culture, uh, who are yeah. horrified by these kinds of things. Father,
0: before we run out of time, I want to get to this. Last week, Reuters reported that senior Chinese officials briefed Hong Kong Catholic clergymen and other religious leaders on President Xi's vision of religion with Chinese characteristics. It was an unprecedented meeting. It was organized by the mainland's representative office in Hong Kong this past October. And the clerics who attended describe the meeting as Beijing's most assertive move yet in its influence or attempt to influence Hong Kong's diocese. Now, Father, we've all seen President Xi's scionization of religion in China, the crackdown on religious freedom. What are your thoughts regarding this meeting, and how should the church respond?
1: Well, it's a very serious move. It it, uh, is in continuity with everything else that's been going on in Hong Kong in the last year or so. The crackdown on the freedom of the press, the institution of the um, uh, extradition treaties, the jailing of journalists such as Jimmy Lai. um, Mm -hmm. And so I think this is... um, uh, a very serious move and a very sorry moment for Hong Kong Catholics. You know, uh, most of the education that went on in Hong Kong was was offered by Christians, particularly Roman Catholics and Anglicans. And uh, this is a recognition of the influence that the church has had and now the attempt to suppress that. And uh, it, what you didn't mention there was it's not just the cultural thing about vestments or things like that, Mm -hmm. under the party. This is the Patriotic Association subordinating the Church to the Communist Party. And of course, uh, we've been to this rodeo before in other places in the world, haven't we?
0: Yeah, yeah, but uh, the the heinous thing here, Father, is um, this has the tacit approval and blessing of the Holy See. They insisted that the underground church merge with this patriotic association, and now yeah. we see the sorry fruits of this. I mean, look, yes. you know Jimmy Lai, and, and I know mm. you know people in Hong Kong. Um, I know Cardinal, I, I show people. Cardinal Zen. Of course, our friend Cardinal Zen. I want to show you this, uh, this uh, and share with people a clip of your documentary. The Acton Institute is creating a documentary on Jimmy Lai. Watch this.
2: The future, which is unknown and uncertain. It's still unknown for me, but it's certain. Freedom was a very short journey for me.
0: He came as basically a refugee from China when he was a teenager. I was put in the bottom of
2: the fishing trunk. And by the afternoon, we arrived in Hong Kong. And the same night, I was taken to a factory to work as a worker. What we eat and sleep in a factory.
0: He was so poor, not highly educated.
2: It was a very happy time. It was a time that I know
0: I had a future. For Chinese, that's like going from Kansas in black and white to Oz, where everything seems like it's possible. As long as you wanted to work, you could make it in Hong Kong. The British gave us all the
2: institutions of freedom, freedom of speech, rule of law, poverty, rights, freedom of
0: assembly, and let our resourcefulness burst.
3: He went from an incredibly poor city to a metropolis. So I
0: stopped a very small factory. He's a classic entrepreneur. And then I went into retailing.
2: Giordano was this huge brand. If I just go on making money, it doesn't mean anything to me. If I go into the media business, I deliver choice.
0: And choice is freedom. Apple Daily played a very important role
1: in Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement.
0: We've never had a territory of 7.5 million people who have lived and breathed the basic freedom having that taken away from them. means determination, fearlessness, the belief in human rights.
1: Mr. Wai insisted on marching in front where the authorities could see him. I've been arrested three times. The Hong
2: Kong police raided the Apple Daily compound.
0: It's very likely that I will have to go to prison. He chose to stay in Hong Kong. Their house is firebombed.
2: All I have,
0: this place gave me. i watched this man willingly give up the life of a billionaire to become a dissident.
2: This is a time for sacrifice. Even if
0: they kill me, I will have to fight to the last day. He's probably the most famous newspaper man
1: now jailed in the world.
2: I owe freedom my life.
0: The documentary is called The Hong Kong or Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom. Why are you doing this now? What does the world need to know about this?
1: Well, I'm doing it now as a personal initiative of a friend. My friend is in prison. My friend may be extradited to China. My friend, I may never see him again uh, in person. And, and he's representative of not just the Hong Kong people, but all of China. And uh, we're doing oh. it now and hope to release it in time for the Winter Olympics, uh, because we want to oh. call attention. The eyes of the world are fixed on China. We want to remind people what's oh. going on in China, with the church, with freedom of the press, with freedom of assembly, with mm. with the sports and people to speak out about abuse. Uh, all of these yeah. things should madden any decent person anywhere in the world.
0: All right. Now, given all of this, the
1: Vatican should be
0: more open-throated in its defense of the people of China and the faithful there, and the world should not be embracing these Olympics, Father. This is a scandal. I I think we should have boycotted them long ago. Maybe COVID will do it for us. Uh, Father, we'll have to leave it there. You can follow the work of the Acton Institute and Father Robert Sirico at acton.org, and look for that new documentary, The Hong Konger, Jimmy Lai's Extraordinary Struggle for Freedom, at acton.org, February 15. Thank you, Father. We'll talk to you soon. God bless. Twenty years ago, on January 6th, the Boston Globe began its devastating series of reports on what became the clergy sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. How much progress has been made by the Catholic Church in the U.S. to address this scandal? Here with his thoughts and analysis is president of the Catholic League and author of the book the truth about clergy sex abuse, clarifying the facts and causes, Dr. Bill Donahue. Happy New Year, Bill. Before we get to this 20th anniversary of the sex abuse crisis, I want to get your take on some other stories this week. On Wednesday, at his audience, the pope spoke about what he termed a demographic winter, when couples choose not to have children. He said, we see that people do not want to have children or just want one or no more. And many, many couples do not have children because they do not want to or have just one, but they have two dogs, two cats. Yes, dogs and cats take the place of children. Yes, it's funny, I understand, but it is the reality. And this denial of fatherhood or motherhood diminishes us. It takes away our humanity. Now, Bill... As as you've seen, the media is having a field day with this. What's your reaction as a sociologist? Uh, There's a lot of outrage over Francis showing disrespect, in quotes, for pets and pet parents. No, what the pope said is absolutely right. As a
2: matter of fact, uh, he's more right than he realizes. That's true, by the way, in Japan, not just simply in the United States and and in Europe. Uh, So there is a phenomenon that's going on here. Uh, As far as I see it as a sociologist, it's born of basically one thing, narcissism. Uh, A lot of young people today, they don't want to deal with the the burdens of children. They'd rather have a dog that loves him. And uh, and a lot of it is driven by that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I understand children can be expensive and they can be burdensome. I have two of my own, and I love them dearly. But the idea... And and it's great to have pets. Uh, I'm all in favor of that, too. But the idea of having a, a kind of a substitute. For children, which the Pope is absolutely right about, uh, that's something which culturally is very troubling. It's what you—it's know, what happens when secularism becomes the dominant strain in the society.
0: Yeah, well, Bill, I always say, look, I love pets, too, but if I have to choose spending that much time walking something and uh, changing it and taking it to the doctor, I'd rather have a child so they can one day wash me, take me to the doctor, you know. I, I, I hate to be greedy here, but anyway, uh, Jesuit father Pat Conroy is making news in The Washington Post this week. Conroy is the former chaplain of the House of Representatives. In an interview, Father Conroy drew a distinction between pro-choice and pro-abortion Catholics, saying that a pro-choice Democrat is not a pro-abortion Democrat. And then he calls choice a Catholic value. What did you think when you first read this, Bill?
2: Well, choice is a verb, and it has no moral meaning. We have to know what the object is. Uh, Choice to do what? a, a knife in, in the hands of a surgeon can make a, a, a sick person better. Uh, in, in, in the hands of a thug, he'll, he'll take you out. I want to know what the choice is about. If the choice is slavery, then we should be opposed to it. I don't want to encourage more of those kinds of choices. I want less of them. And, and the same is true of abortion. Now, basically, Father Conroy is pro-abortion. Now, he would insist he's pro-choice. That's fine. He can say whatever he wants. We know what side he comes down on. And, uh, yeah, for a Jesuit priest to, to be so bold as to come out and say it? Uh, is rather astonishing. But uh, you know, the same arguments were, in fact, made uh, when we had, uh, back in the ni- mid-19th century, when slavery was, was, was legal, uh, and people said, mm-hmm. you know, you should impose your choice on me. Actually, Father Conway went further than that. He said that we, we shouldn't be against any kind, any, any, or no one should be against the, uh, taking away the choice of anybody. Everybody wants choices. Well, does he read the newspapers? Does he know what's going on at Princeton and at Yale? Where you can't leave the perimeter, that they, they will get you if you leave, go into New Haven, go out for a slice of pizza because they're worried you might get the sniffles of a new flu. Uh, the lockdowns are all over the place, and lots of people, particularly in blue states, they love lockdowns. So choice is not something uh, that, that even Americans like anymore. It depends what choice, what it is. Uh, the choice to put drugs into your body, they like, the drugs to kill your kid, they, they like as well.
0: Mm. And, and t- Father Thomas Reese, another Jesuit, and others, have tried to muddy these moral waters for political advantage in the past, Bill. And uh, y- your great friend Cardinal uh, O'Connor, uh, John O'Connor in New York, uh, had to smack him down when he, when he tried to pull the same routine.
2: Well, that's true. And, and I also don't like it when Father Conway misrepresents Thomas Aquinas uh, by saying that, mm-hmm. oh, your conscience is all that matters. Well, as I've mentioned many times before, Jeffrey Dahmer had a conscience. So did Hitler. So did Stalin. Lots of... Everybody has a Mm. conscience. The question is, is it a well-formed conscience? And Aquinas did say that the the truth was in the Catholic Church. That was the the work of the Holy Spirit. And you don't have a right to override that. So when you misrepresent Mm. Aquinas to make your pitch uh, for pro-abortion... No, there are people in this country, by the way, who do like abortion. As I pointed out in my statement about this, people walk around with signs saying abortion is a blessing. Uh, I, I like women who have had an abortion. So it's not true that everybody who votes for a pro choice candidate, so to speak, is against abortion, really. No, a lot of them really do like it.
0: Bill, on December 27th, the New York State Department of Health. Determined that certain risk factors must be present for a patient to receive new anti-COVID treatments. One of those risk factors is being quote non-white race or Hispanic Latino ethnicity. Now, as a lifelong New Yorker who is none of those things, Bill, your thoughts on this racial litmus test for treatment?
2: Well, it's it's been it's been surfering, it's been bubbling for a number of years. It's now at a height. The idea of beating up on whitey is now chic, it's in vogue. And and the real cowards here are white people. They won't stand up. Uh, I'm not saying we're being victimized every day. I am saying, and we have, we have a list of it at Catholic League that we're putting out, all the celebrities who say things about white people which you could never, ever say about black people without being called a racist. And, by the way, it's not just white people who have been told to go to the back of the line in New York. The Biden administration has been doing this summarily, since uh, he's in an office one month, and they're making decisions on black farmers and black businessmen and others. White people go to the back of the line. Men in particular go to the back of the line. Now, this is racism, all right? And I and, and we should not buy into the critical race theory idea that, if you're white, you, uh, you have to be a racist, and if you're black, you can't be a racist. Racism is, is, is an idea, and it's, it's putting in motion what prejudice is, which is discrimination, when you treat people differently on the basis of their color of their skin or their ethnicity. And, and it doesn't turn on ideology. They're trying to change it this other way. White people need to say, no, time out, folks. You are the racist who promote critical race theory. You're the ones who say that because I am a white guy, I am a racist. That in, in itself is racist. But until we stand up to these people, and a lot of them have Ph.D. after their name. Uh, yeah, Most of the people I have known, or certainly a large number of them who have the Ph.D., I have worked with them a good part of my life, are, are indeed amongst the most intolerant in America.
0: Bill, as I mentioned earlier, January 6th marks the 20th anniversary of the Boston Globe's blockbuster report on the clergy sex abuse scandal in the Catholic Church. In your estimation, how much progress has been made by the Church since the Globe broke that abuse crisis story? I mean, you detail much of this in your book, The Truth About Clergy Sexual Abuse.
2: Yes, we're down to 5.9 substantiated accusations made against 50,000 members of the clergy per year. The figure back in the 70s was close to 7,000. I don't know of a single institution in the United States, secular or religious, which has a better record today and has had now for about 20 years, this is nothing new, than the Catholic Church, yet you have publications like The National Catholic Reporter and others they don't want the scandal to go away. They want to make everybody believe it's still around, oh, let's have another tribunal, let's, let's institute all kinds of data banks and, and whatnot. They have an interest. And, by the way, isn't it interesting that these dissenting groups like the National Catholic Reporter and others, they helped promote the scandal, because they were the ones who challenged the Catholic Church's teachings on sexual ethics. They're the ones who said we were too restrictive. So we got rid of the restrictions, and guess what we got? A lot of sick men started acting out, and that's why you had the sexual revolution in the Catholic Church in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and where well, you don't have it today. Now, the bishops have done a good job, finally, of cleaning up the mess, I which I wish other institutions would follow their lead.
0: Bill, in 2002, you were, at first, very complimentary of The Globe's reporting. And you you wrote of The Boston Globe, it was a rare event in 2002 to read a newspaper account of the scandal that was patently unfair, much less anti-Catholic. The Boston Globe, The Boston Herald, and The New York Times covered the story carefully and with professionalism, you wrote in 2002. When did you feel that The Boston Globe, along with other places in the media, started losing that objectivity?
2: It took, uh, it took uh, several years, I think maybe at least three or four years, before I realized that what was going on now, is they're sinking their teeth in, they don't want the scandal to go away, because they're not reporting on what's going on in the public schools or in any other religion. And there's a reason for that. The, the left in this country, the ruling class which is bought into the left, let's face it, they're, they're now owned by the left, uh, they, they reject the idea of sexual reticence. The idea of sexual restraint as a virtue is what we got from our Jewish brothers and sisters and is shared by others, not just Catholics and, 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 and Jews around the world. Now, if, you're, if, you're, if your idea of liberty is that of license, to do whatever you want to do, a riot of the id, so to speak, then the Catholic Church has to be the first uh, institution that you're going to go after. So if the, if the Catholic Church's moral authority has been weakened because of a scandal, which it brought on itself to a large extent, um, then then that's something that you need to to celebrate and, and, and sink your teeth into it. Mm. You also have the lunatics on the right, too, by the way, who don't want the scandal to go away, because they think we made too many reforms. The left says we didn't make too enough reforms. So for, for both wings, bad news about the Catholic Church is good news. For practicing Catholics who love the church, bad news about the Catholic Church is bad news. And we should condemn those on the far right and left, except the ones on the left. Are the ones like the National Catholic Reporter who hold sway on college campuses that are Catholic. So they are a bigger threat than the nut jobs are
0: over at uh, Church Militant. Bill, why do you think Boston was the epicenter of this scandal? Uh, as we later found out, abuse occurred at an alarming rate all over the country. Why Boston? Well, back in the 1970s and
2: 80s, Boston was the hub, the epicenter of the sexual revolution for gays in particular. And within the Catholic Church, you had two organizations, Dignity, uh, which, which was basically in rebellion against the church's teachings on sexuality, take root there. Uh, and then you had other organizations which weren't Catholic, such as Nambla, uh, which also took root in the late 70s in Boston. Paul Shanley, by the way, the, the homosexual priest, almost all of the molesters were homosexual. That's one thing we have to make very clear. They weren't pedophiles. That's, that's another lie. Paul Shanley and others were celebrated in Boston by not only the Catholic left, but by the secular elites. Remember, Boston is a college town. They have got more college universities there than any place else in the United States. That, tends, they, that makes them pretty much on the left to begin with. And they celebrated this. So it, it is striking to me how many people around the country, particularly in Boston, were horrified to learn that Paul Shanley and others were molesters, when, in fact, they cheerleaded them, they applauded them. And it was the elite. The people like Jerry Studs, the former congressman uh, who was having sex with the, with the mailboy, uh, people like uh, Barney Frank, who had uh, prostitutes working out of his apartment, these guys were reelected all the time by the very open-minded people in Boston who didn't mind sexual promiscuity. They also loved the Kennedys, too, uh, right, or the beginning with Joe Kennedy. So predatory behavior is not something that a, lot, a large percent of the people in this country Uh, not just in Boston, have objected to. That's why they're so phony now when they say, oh, my God, listen, we had a scandal in the Catholic Church. It's a scandal which you helped to create by creating a milieu or an environment which allowed for a libertine understanding of sexuality which is positively irresponsible sociologically.
0: Before I let you go, the connection between Shanley and the role that public dissent from church teaching played in this scandal and its aftermath, Bill, what's the connection there?
2: Listen, if you are a healthy man and you are hearing dissident uh, discussions in your moral theology class, you may just dismiss it. But let's say you're a disturbed man. You have all kinds of issues, and you're hearing now the professor say, Taking it from a book by Kosnick, Anthony Kosnick, called *Human Sexuality*, which was used in the seminaries, uh, saying that every form of sexual expression is morally equal, and then you have on top of that people like Sister Janine Gramic, who's been condemned by the Vatican, but she's now back in in good stead, I think, with some people in the Vatican, which isn't a subject I'm going to address next week. Uh, she praised Shanley several times after it was exposed. That, uh, that he himself was a predator. The National Catholic Reporter praised him three times, at least, after it was uh, uh, exposed that he was a predator. These are people who knew that Shanley was a sick man. He was a a, a gay guy who said that the kid was the seducer. The kid was the seducer. That's what justified his predatory behavior. He had sex with men between the ages of 7 and 70. Again, they had to be men, otherwise he wouldn't have sex with them. But he was the hippie priest. He was the darling of Boston amongst Catholic left and amongst the the dissidents and amongst the, the elite Uh, in in Boston who were secularists, too. So it's the left that created the scandal, and they're the ones now who are claiming, oh, my God, it was the Catholic Church's teachings on moral theology that did it. No, if you followed your vow and you followed chastity and not your id,
0: you wouldn't have done what you had done if you were a sick priest. Bill Donahue, the new book, The Truth About Clergy Sexual Abuse, Clarifying the Facts And The Causes, published by Ignatius Press, is available at bookstores everywhere, including the EWTN catalog. Bill Donahue, thank you for being here. Thank you. My next guest is the op-ed columnist for The New York Times. I recently spoke to him about his struggles with a mysterious chronic illness and what it took to find a diagnosis and healing. He's written about the experience in a new book, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Here's my interview with Ross Douthat. Ross, I want to start uh, with this harrowing tale you relate in the book. Uh, You become ill in the summer of 2015. You and your wife, Abby, are in the middle of selling your home in D.C. and moving to Connecticut, which seems like an idyllic uh, uh, destination where you wanted to be all along. Um, Throughout all of this, you are horribly sick and your doctors find what they diagnose as a boil. Uh, tell us what happened from
3: there. So we were, we were still in Washington. So we had bought our, our dream house in the country in Connecticut, uh, but we were still living in you know the, the corruptions of our nation's capital inside the beltway for a few more months before we moved. And I became very, very ill. And it started, as you say, with a red spot on my neck, but it quickly progressed to strange body pain, headaches, phantom heart attacks, bowel issues. Mm. Uh, I lost 40 pounds in two months. I was sleeping an hour a night. Um, it was incredibly bad. And none of the doctors in DC could figure out what was wrong with me. And so instead- What I, did you, you think know, was happening? Saw- I I mean, I thought something was physically wrong with me. It was very clear to me most of the time that I was in terrible pain um, and that it was real and not just something that was stress-induced, which was sort of what the doctors, you know, when doctors can't figure out what Mm -hmm. something actually is, they sort of retreat to mystery and say, well, you have a very important job and you're under all kinds of stress. Probably you're (laughs) generating these symptoms somehow on your own. And I mostly didn't believe that, um, but... You know, you when you see lots and lots of doctors and they all tell you the same thing, it sort of wears you down. And at certain points, I yeah. tried to tell myself, oh, this is all in your head and so on. Uh, interestingly, right. it was when I saw psychiatrists, they usually said, no, this is clearly a physical illness. <laughs> so it was only the, huh. the non-psychiatrists who said, oh, it's all in your head.
0: Yeah, and at that point, you are already on antidepressants and Xanax and the whole thing. Um, how was it discovered that you had this chronic form of Lyme's disease? And what did you think when you found out that this was the source of your pain?
3: So we finally made the move to Connecticut. We sort of dragged ourselves mm-hmm. to, this, to, to this house that had been our dream house and now felt more like Stephen King territory because I was so <laughs> sick. And we were so isolated mm-hmm. there. And once we got to the Northeast, you started seeing doctors who said, "Oh, we see weird illnesses like this all the time. The spot on your neck was probably a tick bite. You probably have Lyme disease." Wow. And they put me on antibiotics, and I immediately stabilized. I stopped, you know, I I started sleeping five hours a night instead of one hour. I was able to eat again, um, but the pain didn't go away. And so I quickly found myself inside this incredibly intense medical controversy, because most most people who get Lyme disease take antibiotics and get better. 75, 80 percent of people just get better. But a large number don't. And there's this huge debate about whether doctors should go on treating them or whether there's nothing to be done. This is actually the official CDC view. There's nothing to be right. done, and you just have to sort of wait and hope for to recover on your own.
0: Yeah, and, and, and this is really, Lyme's disease has become a political minefield. I mean, as you mentioned, the CDC defines this as a disease caused by tick bites that can cause all sorts of problems. Um, it's usually treated in four to six weeks with antibiotics, and that's the end of it. But there is no official medical view on the chronic form of the disease. Uh, this has all made you, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, deeply distrustful here of the CDC, and those institutions that we turn to, to medical answers. Why?
3: Well, what you get a sense of is sort of how bureaucratic systems don't deal well with things that are outside their understanding. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, what I've tried to do throughout this experience is maintain a certain kind of trust in The things that i think the medical system does well i i do think you know if i got diagnosed with cancer tomorrow i would go in for chemotherapy i you know antibiotics have been you know they're sort of a core a core feature of modern science and they've ended up being a core feature of my treatment so i'm not trying to throw out the system but the system is built around sort of easily testable and replicable results Um, and diseases that are relatively easy to understand and easy to treat. And with chronic illness especially, and you see this now Mm -hmm. with long-term COVID, um, you've seen it with chronic fatigue syndrome. Lyme disease is just one of many conditions that have this problem. You you get a diagnosis, and the system is not built to treat you. It's not built to sort of Mm -hmm. experiment with patients over a long period of time, which unfortunately is what you need to do to actually get better.
0: Yeah. No, I I have a number of friends, uh, two dear friends, who have suffered through, they didn't know, like you, they weren't sure what they were going through, but it was pseudoparalysis, they couldn't walk, they they were having trouble holding food down, I mean, very odd symptoms. And uh, eventually, they were diagnosed with Lyme's disease, but there's no clear medical answer here. Now, over the past six years or so, and I should point out, you are still ongoing in your recovery you've tried what you've described as some very exotic treatments including uh acupuncture magnet therapy and the rife machine tell explain to people what is the rife
3: machine how has it helped you so the right the the rife the rife machine is a box that generates various kinds of frequencies audio radio frequencies different different kinds of frequencies and the theory mm-hmm. behind it which goes back to an american inventor in the 1940s is that there are there is a frequency at which different bacteria different pathogens basically vibrate mm-hmm. and shatter sort of the way a, you know an opera singer's high note can shatter right. um, a glass right that's that's the theory and so you've had people who've basically seemingly conducted all kinds of off the books experiments with these with these frequencies and Lyme disease patients in particular have been likely to use them and end up swearing by them. Mm. But when you get the when you get the box, it comes with a booklet that lists frequencies for just about every every condition known to man. And <laughs> so I, I wanna stress when I talk about this that I I don't have, you know, any kind of Definitive scientific evidence that the Rife machine right. works. What I only have is personal mm-hmm. experience. Um, so if you go online and read about it, it does sound mm-hmm. like pseudoscience. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. at a certain point, when you've been sick for long enough, you end up trying a lot of things that you would never have considered trying before you got mm-hmm. sick. And not everything I tried worked, but very to my great surprise, in certain ways, the Rife machine did clearly have effects similar to taking antibiotics, which is just wow. a very, I mean, it's, it's sort of comical in certain ways when you're doing these treatments on the edge, on the fringes of science, and you think of yourself as a very mm-hmm. serious and reasonable person, right? <laughs> and then they actually seem to work. It's, you know, you can't help sort of laughing at the, the unfathomable mysteries of the universe, I guess.
0: Uh, in deep places, you write about uh, how you were reluctant to take help from even your father, who helps you both financially to save your Connecticut home. You've since moved out, which after reading the book, I think is a good choice. Uh, and he also helps with fixes and physical work. How difficult was it for you to accept his help? And what did you learn from that experience of not being able to do for yourself always?
3: I mean, I think you learn a lot during a chronic illness of how fundamentally dependent we are. and. You know, one of the themes of this book is, you know, I got sick at age 35 after having spent 15 years as an adult sort of being generally very successful. I became a New York Times columnist at a young age. I married the woman I wanted to marry. We had then two beautiful children. Now we have four. And I sort of thought of life, you know, at an intellectual level. I thought, you know, well, of course, bad things happen and suffering is an important part of life. And I was very critical of, you know, sort of shallow theologies that say, oh, God just wants you to be happy and, you know, do what God wants and good things will happen. I was critical of those intellectually, but I sort of believed them for myself. I sort of felt like if I just, you know, made the right choices, my life would be a pretty smooth walk and I would be sort of an independent and masterful person that I was, you know, gonna have this family compound in rural Connecticut and live there happily. Right. And disease is a is an educator in the reality that, right. you know, yeah, I was I became dependent on family members. We relied heavily on my father for help and support. I was dependent on my wife who suffered mightily through this experience. Right. And then more generally you're just you know you're in the hands of God. And when you have an experience hmm. like this, it's not always totally reassuring right you know the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom right you sort of you you Mm -hmm. i I would say that my belief in god was strengthened by this but so was also my sense that you know god does not always deliver you exactly what you expect and some of the things that he delivers are you know incredible trials and tests that you have to undergo and survive (laughs)
0: The Deep Place is a memoir of illness and discovery by Ross Douthat is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.